Welcome to the Think for Yourself podcast, hosted by Dr. Vikram Mancharamani. If you haven't subscribed, please do so via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Podbean. And now, over to Dr. Mancharamani. Thanks, everyone, for joining this 12th episode of the Think for Yourself podcast. In this episode, I'll be sharing the audio portion of my webinar interview with Reince Priebus. Reince is the former chairman of the Republican National Committee and served as President Trump's first chief of staff. He's twice been listed in their Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World and is an absolutely fascinating personality. I've gotten to know him a little bit and I'm excited to share with you my interview. So let's just turn to it. Thanks. So uh, thank you everyone for, for logging on. Uh, for those that join late, there is a, there will be a replay, so we can always catch it that way. But I'm absolutely thrilled today to have uh, Reince Priebus with us uh, to talk uh, about the state of US political dynamics and a whole bunch of other things. Uh, before we get started, however, I wanna just take a second to thank uh, the folks at Washington Speakers Bureau uh, who have partnered with me for this particular webinar. Uh, the folks at WSB have just been absolutely a pleasure to work with and uh, absolutely thrilled to have them representing me. And I think uh, Rance would probably say he's thrilled to have uh, them representing him as well. So um, thank you, WSB. Um, now, I want to uh, just remind everyone about this webinar series. Um, you know, it, it started really to support the, the launch of my forthcoming book, Think for Yourself. Uh, that book is going to be released on June 16th. Uh, it's available for pre-order now, so please do uh, buy it. There's my commercial, uh, and I'm done with that. So, uh, And then I'm pleased to announce that next week, I will be hosting Bruce Grucock uh, to talk uh, during my Think for Yourself webinar on uh, Friday at 10 a.m., is when we'll have Bruce. Uh, Bruce is the chairman of Peter Kiewit & Sons, uh, one of the largest construction companies in the country, uh, privately held, based out of Omaha, uh, one of the most successful companies probably in American history. Uh, they happen to have one claim to fame, they're also Warren Buffett's landlord. <laughs> uh, so Warren Buffett's offices are in their building. Um, and so Bruce will join us next week. And then a reminder that there are replays available. Uh, there is the replay with Apollo Robbins, who was a somewhat unusual uh, webinar series uh, event last week. A fabulous conversation with him about how to manage focus, the art of deception and, and what have you. Uh, we had, of course, Jim Grant available also as a replay, who talked about the United States of the Federal Reserve, among other things, and sort of the economic and uh, financial markets. Um, we had Kishore Mabubani, uh, who talked about China and the U.S.-China rivalry, a topic I know we're going to address later uh, today with Reince, uh, but you know there was that replay available. Uh, had Tom Petrie talking about the oil markets. Tom, one of the most successful and longest standing and most informed oil industry analysts, uh, helped us understand why oil prices went negative. Um, and before that, we had General Lori Robinson, four-star Air Force general retired, former commander of NORAD, uh, former commander of Northern Command, um, and uh, just an all-around wonderful American patriot uh, who spent an hour with us, and that replay is also available. And then the first one was with Dr. Ali Khan, who talked about the pandemic, uh, really during the early days of the pandemic, uh, and of course the author of The Next Pandemic. Uh, and so all of those replays are available. The links are on my website, which is just my last name, www.mansharamani.com. 
And so with that, I am absolutely thrilled to, uh, to welcome Rance. Rance, thanks for taking the time to join me today. Happy to be with you and everyone on the call. Thank you so much. And certainly uh, wild times that we're in uh, in many ways. So uh, I'm here actually in DC and I'm in my office and that's the Potomac behind me. And uh, hopefully y'all can see me. I apologize that it's a little dark, but I'll do my best. Yeah, well, that's great. Thanks, Reigns, again for joining. So for those that don't know much about Reigns, uh, I will tell you to come out from under the rock you've been hiding under because you should know about him already. Uh, he served as uh, the White House Chief of Staff uh, for the beginning part of the year 2017 uh, for a long period of time before that, I think it was almost uh, six or seven years, Rance, you were chairman of the Republican National Committee uh, and really responsible for the Republican renaissance, you would argue. Uh, in many ways, he was the architect behind that strategy. Um, he was twice listed on Time Magazine's list of the 100 most influential people in the world. Uh, and so I am, like I said, just thrilled to have you here. So again, thanks, Rance. So well, being a, being a, the, the longest serving chair of the RNC proves that I can keep a job for more than six months. So <laughs> there you go. Well, yeah, no, that's right. So how did you actually get into politics? Let's start there. I mean, I, I think in a prior conversation you and I had, I asked, is it, did you just think about politics when you were a little kid? And you sort of had a really interesting answer. That's a, you know, I don't get, surprisingly, I don't get asked that very much, but, um, so with a name like Reince Priebus, you figure there's got to be a story behind a name like that. I tell people that my life's like, you know, have you ever seen a movie about Big Fat Greek Wedding? That's my life, you know. So um, my mother and father uh, met in Khartoum, Sudan. But don't worry, everybody, I'm not going to go through every little detail. But um, it kind of gives you a little background. So my mother was born in Khartoum, Sudan. They're all Greeks. I know it's kind of strange, but Greeks and Italians all moved to Northern Africa in the 60s. Uh, and it was a big, uh, big place for Europeans to go to in any event. So they moved to New York and in Greek culture, you say, well, what are we gonna name the child? Well, what's your father's name? You know, that's how Greeks many times name their kids. So I say all that to, to bring you up to speed that Growing up, I always had family from Europe and Greece come and visit us for months at a time. It's not like, you know, Americans go to Europe for 10 days and that's a long vacation. When the Greeks come, it's for a few months and they're living in one of the bedrooms down the hallway. Well, my grandfather was the person that I looked up to the most in my life and anything he did, I wanted to copy. And he loved America. Anything about the United States, he loved. Anything about us, he wanted to copy. And I remember sitting on the couch, and my grandfather would take the letter P from the world books off the shelf. Remember those things, the world books? Yep. Yep. The letter P for presidents. And he would sit there and read to me stories about one president after the next. And it didn't matter, Republican, Democrat, Eisenhower, oh, he was great. Carter, oh, yes, Carter. Reagan was the best. And the one thing I remembered from all this is that the person I looked up to the most in my life loved every single thing and every crumb about this country, but he wasn't from here. And so from an early age, for whatever reason, because of all these things, I became very interested 
in our country, the leadership of our country, and I got involved in politics. And so at the early age of 16, I was the secretary of the Kenosha County Republican Party in Wisconsin, the little county party, yeah. and I was the secretary. And by the way, even with me at 16 on this board, the average age of the board was probably about 85. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> like, boy, it doesn't belong here, right? So I just followed it and I loved it. And I went along every crazy job in the party you can imagine. Everything from, you know, making sure there was enough pizzas at the phone bank to, you know, fall festivals and fundraisers and everything you can imagine and slowly but surely from the county party the district party i was a lawyer too full-time i was doing all this on the side um state party chairman in wisconsin and we turned the party around and then on the seventh ballot i became chairman of the rnc in 2011 and most people thought who is this guy what is how do i even pronounce his name and i became chair of the rnc and everything else from there uh, it was a pretty wild ride that I'm sure we'll talk about. Sure, sure. Well, let's turn to that, Prince. I mean, I think one of the most interesting things is you've told me that you kind of looked at Obama's campaigning logic and sort of the strategy uh, there, and you, you took some lessons from that approach and you applied it to the uh, 16 election very successfully. Well, when I walked into the RNC, just to kind of rewind here, we were, it's the biggest political party in the world. It's bigger than the DNC. And that's another structural issue in how the Democrats operate differently than the Republicans. But the RNC is the biggest political party in the world. We were 26 million in debt. Both credit cards were suspended for non-payment. My wife and I used our own credit cards and a home equity loan to get through the first few months of payments at the RNC. So we had about 80 employees total, and Barack Obama had about 800 in Florida alone. And so that's really what we stepped into. And I always believed that, you know, the Obama mechanics, the campaign that those folks put together was the campaign that I looked up to. And I thought the 04 Bush reelect was great too, but the technology changed so much between 04 and 08 and the Obama campaign just harnessed it all and the digital and the data. And so we then decided I, we were gonna build out the RNC just like that, focusing on all the boring stuff, data, infrastructure, and we can talk about how that mechanic works later, but that is really what we built. And, and we stuck it out for the long haul and we built around something that people call the autopsy, which generally is what we call the growth and opportunity report. But the idea, idea is, is that the Republican Party or any political party cannot airdrop into communities four months before an election and expect to, to move the dial. So there's a heavy focus on voter data, voter identification, turnout, influencing, and then election day operation, which as everyone may recall, Election day is not just election day. It starts in many cases in September and it goes for 60 days. And so that's really what we built at the RNC. And I'd love to chat a little bit more about how we use data and, and infrastructure to identify uh, voters and turn them out. It's the same thing a lot of you need to do uh, with your businesses. Yeah. Listen, Ray, so biggest lesson from that experience, though. 
uh, obviously you took lessons from the democratic success story uh but but what did you learn that you would if let's say you were running a campaign today what's the biggest takeaway from that experience where you see opportunity for improvement well i mean it might well those are two different things i think i mean we put together an infrastructure which if i i'm gonna kind of um maybe grossly um simplify what we're doing but and, but it's not an exaggeration we know so if you're listening and you're in ohio for example i know what beer you drink i know what car you drive i know how many kids you have i know whether your mortgage is right side up or upside down every single thing you can imagine we have ten thousand points of consumer data on you and what the crazy thing, thing about data is is that if I know you drive a red pickup truck, have two girls under 10 years old, make X amount of money, do this, do that, buy that. I know that from a scale from one to a hundred, what your propensity is going to be to support Trump or Biden. And the wild, and, and that's important because if I know that you're an 80 percenter or above, then all I need to do is make sure that I get an absentee ballot in your hand and I can see every day whether the Cuyahoga County Clerk's Office registers your absentee ballot coming in. And if it, if it doesn't, then someone's gonna knock on your door. They're gonna put an absentee ballot. They're gonna get one to you or help you get one. And then they're gonna make sure you turn it in and I'm gonna knock on your door again. And then I just wanna focus in on the 50, 60, 70%. And it might be messaging that I need to work on. It might be whatever. You might have a neighbor that's 90% or I'm gonna have that person call you. You're on the Boys and Girls Club board in Cleveland. I'm gonna have that person call you who's a 90%er. For Trump. So all these things are what parties do. It's, in fact, you know, being party chairman is being in charge of a lot of boring things. But like anything in life, like what, you know, a lot of what you all have to do, you know, it's, it's running a successful business or if you're running a, a successful HR division or tech division or whatever it is, it, most of it is just being really good at a lot of details and boring things. And it's big picture, it's macro. But that piece and understanding the detail, just like you can imagine, if I kept going, I'd probably bore you all to tears, but it, you can see that there's passion and knowledge in very detailed things that being really good at something you have to be. So the thing that I learned and my takeaway in the party is something a little different, which is stop, don't sell things that you don't control. Don't sell a product that you don't actually have control over. And in politics, it's easy to try to sell things you don't control. Like, oh, well, I'm going to, I, you know, someone will say, well, here's what we need to do. We need to pass a bill on a flat tax, or we need to do this. And if we just did X, Y, and Z, and a lot of business people have sort of macro opinions about what should happen in politics and party chairs and people who need to raise money Oftentimes we'll say, yeah, you're right. I, we need to do this. I'm going to talk to Senator so-and-so and, but here's what we need to win. And could you send your check? But the reality is I can't guarantee whether that piece of legislation is going to pass or not. But what I can do is I can sell you what I'm actually doing as party chairman and how I'm using your resources to finance data, infrastructure, people on the ground, black and Hispanic engagement to communicate with people and how what I actually control while not entirely all that exciting yep. is I'm going to put the best product I can with your money 
helping me and I'm going to deliver in my world that I control in this piece of the puzzle. And I found it to be far easier to sell that way than to take on the entire universe of what it makes you mad about politics when sure. I know I don't control 90% of all those things. Yep, yep. No, it's a, it's a good lesson to sort of blocking and tackling and get it. So, all right, so Trump wins. Uh, what was your first day in the office like after that? Well, um, you know, it started, first of all, Trump winning. You know, we, we thought we had a jump ball leading into the election. And that has to do with a lot with our data, because our, even though the polling was coming our direction, you know, if you go back and look at real clear politics, um, what you'll see is that the polling showed there was one poll that showed Trump was going to win by two points the, the day before the election. But everything else is that we we're going to lose from anywhere from two to five points nationally. Turns out we did actually lose nationally. So this is why you shouldn't worry too much about national polling. But nevertheless, um, we felt like we had a jump ball and it had to do with our data, which was different than the information that the national polls were showing. The other thing was back to what I was saying before, when you know who is putting absentee ballots into the ballot box, I can overlay all those people under the voter file and see where we're at. So for example, in Florida, we all know they have months of early voting. Well, before election day, you have 2 million people already in the box and the secretary of state publishes who those people are. So if you take the names of those 2 million people, we knew on election day that we were a couple hundred thousand votes ahead of where Mitt Romney was four years earlier. Yep. So it's not like the party sits around and flushes money down a toilet without the data and information. So what was it like? It was, it was surprising, but at the same time, it was really following our instruments that said we had a good chance to win. You're yeah. always, I think you're always surprised when you win because it's so big and the moment is huge. Um, but we then started pretty much from scratch. I think uh, Governor Christie did good work on the transition, but we basically had to build an entire federal government in November, December, and January. And you all remember, we had to build a cabinet. We were bringing people into Bedminster. Remember the meetings in front of the door and you were bringing in, you know, Rudy Giuliani and Christie and Mattis and Kelly. Yeah. And so it was a whirlwind, um, but, um, but it, you know, it, it all sort of worked. And we, we walked into the Oval Office on day one and we got to work and I basically walked into my office. It was empty. Um, it was inauguration day. And I look at my computer and there's this password on the computer and there's a Bible verse on the desk. And basically that's how you start. And there's no manual, there's nothing. I mean, it's just, you're gonna run the federal government. Yeah. And I remember walking into the Oval Office with the president and we looked around and we, I'd not been in the Oval Office before. I remember the president just looked up at the ceiling and he just said, because he was overwhelmed by the moment. And he just said, wow. And he looked at me and he said, can you believe it? And I said, no, Mr. President, I can't believe it. Yeah. And uh, 
it was a, it's a pretty wild thing to, um, to have that kind of incredible responsibility that's sure. suddenly in your hands. Yeah. So Rez, in that capacity, you have unique insight into how the president makes decisions, his decision-making processes, et cetera, his hiring processes, what he looks for in people, et cetera. Uh, share some thoughts on that. Well, I think the president, I think what you'll have seen by now, it's a different decision-making style. Um, he, it is not a traditional style of bottom up all the time type decision making. Now, 95% of all the decisions in the West Wing are done through what, you know, we do call deputy and principal committee meetings. Um, we have the situation room that many decisions are made in. So in other words, if, if you were making um, trade decisions or military decisions, most of the time, 95% of them are made initially by deputies committees. So everyone would have a deputy. So all the principals, you know, 30 different people would have a deputy. They'd meet for weeks about a particular topic, say the Paris climate accord. Okay. They're meeting about Paris and meeting about Paris. Then they get to a place where they narrow down the decision-making to four or five things. And then the principals come in and start meeting about the same topic. And then you bring to the president a decision memo that, you know, three or four different places to go. We can stay in the agreement, get out of the agreement. Maybe there's a middle hybrid place. And here are the decision, Mr. President. Here are the three choices. Which one do you want to do? And then he actually signs a decision memo, which is part of the Presidential Records Act, but then gets sent on to the staff secretary and gets put in the permanent history of our country. That's how almost every decision is made. But in the process, the president oftentimes in, likes to put opposite people on a particular topic around each other. So, you know, a lot of White Houses have like the same species of people that, you know, they're all kind of the same, right? We all know like Bush Republicans are all kind of the same. Clinton Democrats are the same. Obama Democrats, that's not, we all get it, right? But a lot of times Trump puts like, you know, opposites all over the place, you know, natural predators all coming together. And, but he learns from really smart people. So you can have Gary Cohn, Peter Navarro, Bob Lighthizer, Wilbur Ross, Reince Priebus and Steve Bannon in a room and the president says, well, what do you want to do about NAFTA? Well, you can imagine, <laughs> right? The kind of fighting that goes on, but you know what? The president sits there and listens to, I think some of the smartest people in these particular areas. And now you all read in the paper, like, oh, these people are killing each other and they're slitting each other's throats. And the, But the truth is the president then learns through a process of opposite opinion, bringing their A game to the Oval Office and fight. And I can assure you, Gary Cohn, 20-year president of Goldman Sachs, he's not holding back with, and neither is Peter Navarro or Bob Lighthizer who've made their entire careers about being hawks on China. Yeah. So th that really is how decisions are made in the Trump White House. And it does create some drama, but ultimately he learns from that process. Yep.
Yep. So let's talk about a couple of the uh, the bigger topics that took place. So I know you said you'd feel comfortable talking about Flynn and the the, the Russian collusion logic uh, or, or thoughts there, and maybe even Comey. Uh, so let me just leave it open ended there, and <laughs> not lead the witness, so to say. <laughs> yeah. No. Well, you know, look. Now we're learning a little bit about what happened. I mean, there was no coordination with um, Russia. I mean, we didn't, we didn't know anything about Russia. We don't even, you know, know anything about Russian salad dressing, you know, and I used to joke and it, not to be rude, but you know, the Trump campaign could hardly collude with the RNC, let alone Russia, you know, I mean, it's like, you know, give me a break. So these things started, I went back and looked back, you know, on inauguration day, the front page of the New York Times had a story about how Paul Manafort and other people were wiretapped in Trump Tower because of some of their dealings with Russia and Ukraine. And it started there. And everyone was sort of scrambling, what is this going on here? What's happening? And recall, three weeks before that, we had a meeting in the Trump Tower with Jim Comey. And Jim Comey, by the way, in that meeting, this was when the Obama administration was meeting with the Trump incoming Trump folks at Trump Tower. And if you recall, this is when the report was being issued from the Intel community as to whether Trump and, excuse me, whether the Russians were trying to hack the American elections. Remember that? Mm -hmm. Well, I remember sitting there and Jim Comey said, hey, can I meet with the president alone? And apparently he was going to talk to the president about that dossier, if we all recall that. That was with the, all the disgusting stuff that proved out not to be true. Well, <clears throat> that's when it started. Then the week later, the dossier was leaked in, I think it was BuzzFeed leaked the dossier to the whole world. And we were in a mad scramble. Every week we were in a mad scramble. Then a week later, I'm now in the beginning of January. Then a week later, Dave Ignatius in mid, he's a writer for the Washington Post. That was when the first story hit that said Flynn had discussed Obama's actions in excluding the Russian ambassador at the end of December and all kinds of Russians sent back to Russia that that was when Flynn spoke to Kislyak, the ambassador from Russia, about those actions. And it was a huge story. Did you remember that? Did he or did he not speak yeah. to the ambassador? That was what everyone was talking about every day. Well, we didn't care whether he spoke to the Russian ambassador. I mean, we cared because it was an interesting article and it was creating a lot of press and we weren't sure whether it was true or not, but we weren't pursuing Mm -hmm. legal issue. We just want to know, did you or did you not speak yeah. to the Russian ambassador? Well, fast forward, obviously, you know, the story never went away. And Flynn ultimately resigned. Um, now we know that a lot of those things and how it was done and the involvement of the intel community is going to be now subject to a big investigation. Um, but so, sometime after that, uh, Andrew McCabe walked into my office. He was the deputy director of the FBI. And I haven't really shared this story very much, but 
we had an Intel meeting early in the morning with many different members of the Intel community. And at that meeting, McCabe said, before we get done, can I have five minutes alone with you? I didn't know what he wanted. I didn't even know who he was, quite frankly. I was only chief of staff for three weeks. Okay. And I said, sure. I'm thinking, what does this guy want to talk about? Well, he comes around my desk. Now, this is now a day or two after the New York Times published, we're now mid-February, their first article that said that um, there were constant contacts between the Trump campaign and Russia. And we were getting killed in the press 24-7, nonstop. And he came to me alone. No one was in the office. And he said, and pardon the language, but this is exactly what he said. He said, I just want you to know that this article's bullshit. It's not true. It's overstated and it's exaggerated. And I thought to myself, well, I'm going to be the hero of the West Wing because I've got the deputy director of the FBI telling me that this article that I'm getting killed on, that we are contacting the Russians for help yep. was garbage. Yep. And it turns out that he says, well, give me a call. In a couple hours, I said to him, is there anything you can do about it? Can you put out a statement? I'm thinking, well, why are you here? Yeah. <laughs> give me a call in a couple hours. So in a couple hours, I call him back on a secure line at in my office call the fbi deputy director he says listen there's nothing we can do about it you know because we'd obviously have to be putting up statements left and right and i'm thinking well this is great so you come to my office you tell me that and okay and other things happened and other people got involved i'll, I'll save you the story but um a week later i'm looking up at the tv and it says on cnn sources Chief of Staff calls FBI to pressure them to recant the New York Times story. I said, wait a second. And I called the director of the news and I said, wait a minute. I didn't, I never called to pressure anyone. He came to me and told me to give him a call. And, I call, and he says, no, 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 no. This is a news guy. We're not reporting anything. We're just saying, did you or did you not call the deputy? I did, but I didn't know who he was. Yeah, but you, that's all we're saying. You called and this is how news is created. Huh? And so you have the deputy director telling you that there's nothing to this story. And you have the story that goes on for years and years and years. Yeah. And this is what happens in this world. And news is reported 80% inaccurate, 20% accurate, and opinions are formed. And it's very difficult to unwind that stuff. I know it's a super long answer, but I think it's a pretty interesting story. Yeah, no, it's fascinating, right? So I want to uh, I want to drizzle in some random questions here in our conversation. So, uh, wh what's your favorite book? Oh wow, okay. Um, well, I I was a English political science major, mainly focusing on British literature, and I know it's not, it, it, but I love Great Expectations. Yep, great. Uh, so that I would say if I had to pick right. a book. That would be it. Okay. All right. So let's go back. So you. So we. Yep. So we talked a little bit about Russia. Let's talk about the other big uh, geostrategic, geopolitical rival. Might be the right word uh, at this stage, which is China. Uh, obviously, trade conflict. 
and a lot of personalities you've already mentioned, whether it was Navarro or others in the room uh, that have strong views on China. Um, but help us understand what goes through the president's mind vis-a-vis China and what you were able to witness and what you think, given from the outside, look now, you think might be happening with the administration's thinking around China? Well, I think I, I would challenge anyone for fun. It's actually interesting. Google Donald Trump in like 1980, um, Phil Donahue or Larry King interviews. And what you're going to find is that President Trump's views on China were the same in 1985 as they are today. In fact, even the same rhetoric mm -hmm. from 1985 is the exact rhetoric that the president uses today. No one formed President Trump's views on China. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't Navarro, it wasn't Steve Bannon, it wasn't Steve Miller, it was Trump. And so his views on being ripped off by China by them taking advantage of the United States, whether it be pharmaceuticals, manufacturing, steel, aluminum, these are things that he has been talking about for decades. And so what my point to you is where I'm going is Trump winning re-election, which I still think he's going to win re-election. I think it's gonna be a tough race. We'll talk about that in a minute, but um, you're going to get more aggressive positioning with China and Trump's not going to let go. In fact, I think one of the best camp, you know, things have changed over the last couple of months. I realized that, but before COVID, I would have said, if I could make the biggest issue of this campaign, I would make it China. And I would go to, I would go to war with China every single day of the year until November. Um, and I would make it a referendum on that and Trump will win that battle. You know, if you think about what, what is America first, it's really simple. And the brilliance of it, it's issues that 80% of the public agree with. Number one, it's build a wall and protect the American worker. I know a lot of people hate hearing that. They think it's wrong, they're offended by it, but 70% of the American public believes that building a wall and protecting the American worker is something we ought to do whether you think it's going to protect us from drugs, from crime, or just from illegal immigration. Building a wall, protect the American worker. Number two, end, stop endless wars where our young people are getting killed and people just don't believe that we ought to be dying left and right for some of these bad actors all over the place. And so stop and end wars that are, are sort of you know, endless and never come to conclusion. And number three um, is confront China who's ripping off the world. If you think about just those three things, those are powerful positions to have ownership over in Wisconsin, Ohio, Pennsylvania, the Rust Belt, Michigan, these are the things that win elections. But the, the key is though, the reason why it's effective for Trump is that it's genuine. He believes it. It's his, those are his issues. And so when other Republicans, even people like me, 
not not that I'm never running for president, but I'm saying people like me who are typical, you know, establishment type Republicans that try to co-opt those kinds of issues. Guess what? It's not genuine. Not as authentic. Yeah. It's not, if it's not genuine and authentic, yeah. you can't win on it. And that's, you know, the other thing is Trump just represented a huge middle finger to Washington, D.C., and people don't want to gravitate toward it, you know? <laughs> yeah. So let's, let's stick on China for just a minute. You framed it in economic terms, right? I would argue to you that it's far more than an economic rivalry. It's far more than them ripping us off. It may be a war of values globally. This is a space race. This is the Belt and Road influence in the, the rest of the world race. This is a rewriting financial rules race. This is a potential over the long run uh, competition for a global reserve currency status. This is a military sort of, uh, I don't want to say war, but sort of tension building in Asia. This is them ahead of us when it comes to hypersonic weaponry and what it means. And it may actually at some point come to an issue of things like Taiwan. I mean, we've seen it with Hong Kong, maybe Taiwan. Any thinking on sort of the grander rivalry here rather than just the economic one? Oh, there's no doubt. And I, I, I definitely would amend my comments to include, just as you said, it's all of the above. It's infrastructure. It's, you know, you look at, you know, 5G, Huawei, um, you're, you're right, Taiwan, all, everything, military, economy, um, the race for a vaccine, yeah. uh, and, and the idea of our, our drugs being manufactured in China and bringing those home here to the United States, it's all of those things. But I do think that Trumpism has brought the Republican Party and the Democratic Party in one key area, which is China. He has, and it's more so the Republican Party. I mean, he brought most of the Republican Party over to his position on China. Um, and I think you're going to see more doubling and tripling down on those issues that you've just identified. And I think pockets of our leadership in Washington, D.C. are going to tackle each of those issues, pharmaceuticals, infrastructure, weaponry. But part of our challenge as Americans is that, you know, China will play the thousand year game. I mean, they'll, they'll just wait a thousand years. Because yeah. we're worried about what's going to happen in November. And it's just a different culture. Um, and, you know, we, we tend to have less patience to fight out these long battles. But I do think the American people have woken up to being willing to sacrifice a little, a few pennies here and there to yeah. come out ahead on this battle with China. And on yeah. Taiwan, look, I think Taiwan are the modern freedom fighters of, of our age. And personally speaking, only for myself, I would do many things to give Taiwan an edge and a little hat tip every chance I could get uh, to Taiwan to show China that we're not going to get pushed around in Taiwan and that there are certain things that we're not gonna put up with. So I'm curious, maybe there's data behind this, Rance, but do you think the American people would, you talked about not wanting to have soldiers dying in these endless wars. Would they be willing to let soldiers, American soldiers, American lives go to defend Taiwan? 
I don't know. I don't want to speak out of school on that. I, 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 I think that we have agreements, obviously. Yep. Um, with the Taiwan Relations Act. Now I'm really going back into my memory. <laughs> the Taiwan Relations Act is something that we believe in as a country. It's okay. something we believe in as a party. Some of you may not know this, but Taiwan and being uh, allies with Taiwan is a big part of the Republican Party platform. It's actually in the platform hmm. of the Republican Party. And I believe the Taiwan Relations Act and the um, adherence to that and the support of the Taiwan Relations Act is part of the platform of the Republican Party. Hmm. Uh, I'm pretty certain of that and I, I respect it. In fact, by the way, when I became chairman of the RNC in 2011, which was a wild day, the, the, the dinner I had that night with members of the RNC was at the embassy of Taiwan um, in Washington, D.C. with the ambassador of Taiwan the night that I became chairman of the RNC. So there's a lot to this topic yep. in our party in Taiwan than people realize. Yeah, I think I told you, I, I had the pleasure of interning back in the early 90s with Jim Lilly uh, and spending time with Chongping Lin, who was the U.S. equivalent to ambassador to what was then called the Mainland Affairs Council in Taiwan. Well, uh, the Republican Party has exchanges with Taiwan. We used to, I think we still do, but when I was chairman twice a year, I sent delegations of Republicans to okay. Taipei especially around 1010 day, that's their independence day sure. um, to Taiwan. And I always loved going there. I enjoyed it very much. All right. So let's turn a little bit towards 2020, the election here, uh, Rains. We should talk about that. We're starting to run out of time. And by the way, those who want to submit more questions, I've got a lot of questions here. I've got 10 that have been sent in by email. I've got a couple popping in here. Feel free to submit questions, but let me, connect the dots between China and the election by asking this question. Who do you think Xi Jinping wants to win the election in the United States this November? Well, he doesn't want Trump. There's no way, because I think the confrontation that President Trump has brought on and the tariffs and the um, and what may be continued, uh, I think, after the election is clearly not uh, in Trump's favor as far as the president of uh, the Chinese Communist Party, that's for sure. Yeah, so tell us what happens, uh, play through each scenario. So Trump wins or Trump loses. What does it look like? Let's talk internationally first, then we can come to domestically. And obviously we wanna talk about what's happening with the protests and the unrest in the country right now. But before we do that, Let's just hear your thoughts on, you know, Trump wins. What is he, what is he like in his second term? What do we need to pay attention? What are going to be the top? I mean, is this going to really accelerate the conflict with China? Because well, he I don't know, but I don't want to over-exaggerate it. I wouldn't say, you know, I don't want to freak anyone out that there's going to be some big, but I think it's going to be a continuation of confronting China. I think trade with Europe is going to be a big issue. I think this whole concept of protecting the American worker and providing incentives to make product within the United States. Um, you know, I thought the border adjustable 
idea that Paul Ryan had, you know, I don't think the president liked sort of the, it was complicated and it was hard to explain to people, but it was pretty simple. It was a border tax for imports and it was an export credit um, for manufacturers. And so I think there's going to be a real emphasis on those concepts of, of rewarding companies for doing business in the United States, number one. I think you're going to see and where there's going to be potentially a big compromise is in infrastructure. I do believe that while it's not a traditional Republican position, I do believe the president does want a multi-trillion dollar bill on infrastructure. And I think it's a good time to do it because we're going to have, we're going to have an economy that's going to need, we need to spur demand in this country. You can't save the economy unless we can create demand. We can't keep throwing money at, you can't just throw money at oil and, and, and save oil. You have to actually get people in cars and planes to save oil. We need to get Harley Davidson building motorcycles. We need Cummings to build trucks. And so how do you create demand in the economy? That's going to be the focus of the Trump administration. And, and I, so I think you're going to see more of this hyper economic focus. I think the president's very, um, not frustrated, but just, you know, the, the economy was humming and COVID obviously killed a lot of that. I think there's a belief that the economy is going to come back and people are debating whether it's going to be slow or a V or a swoosh or, you know, who knows what. The one thing we do know is that no one knows, right? Yes, so yes. That I know. Yes. That's why predicting what's going to happen in 2020, there is not a, there is no person on the face of the earth, not me, not David Axelrod, not Kyle Rove, Clough, you name it, whoever you think are good political types of people, none of us know if there's going to be a repeat of COVID in September. None of us know what's going to happen with the economy. So no one can predict any outcome. I do think, though, um, that things are going to settle down Things are going to be better in a few months than they are today. And I don't, and I think that the debates are going to be very determinative of who's going to be president. And I, and I do think the president Trump will have a massive advantage over Joe Biden on debates. Mm -hmm. And I think those are going to be game changers. They're going to be massive national events. And I don't think that Biden's going to be, doing well in those. Okay. Um, what do you make of the current unrest in America? Well, I think it's sad, but I think it's necessary, at least on the peaceful side. Um, obviously, what happened to George Floyd shouldn't happen to anybody. And I don't know why these things keep happening, but it's got to change, whether it be training, whether it be um, communication, community events, but this is also a huge opportunity, I think, for the country to come together. It's an opportunity for everyone to come together and, and like, let's agree on some basics here. Yeah. You know, instead of talking about what's dividing us, let's figure out what brings us together and let's not just do it in times of tragedy like this. And it's sad and it's terrible, 
Um, so, and I do think there needs to be law and order too. Um, obviously we can't have people getting killed and businesses getting, you know, shot up and, and things getting stolen. But I do think it starts with talking a little bit about the wrong that happened in Minneapolis. I think we got to talk about that and make sure because people for, you know, people need to see that we're all on the same page mm -hmm. and people need to see that there are, there is a common denominator in this country and it's, you know, equal protection, it's love for each other, it's unity. And it's the one thing that we love. If you go look down at the World War II Memorial mm -hmm. and you look at at the 4,000 golden stars on the wall. Yep. And that, that's right there, that monument, right over my shoulder. Yep. And for every one of those golden stars, a hundred little guys mostly didn't come home to mom and dad. And they had every color there is in our country that didn't come home, that each one of those stars represents. And underneath those stars, it says, here we mark the price of freedom. That's the common denominator at that monument. No matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter what color your skin is, no matter what religion you are, there's that one phrase there that brings all those boys and girls together. Here we mark the price of freedom. So I think we need, to, we need to make sure the whole world knows that there is a common denominator in our country. Yep. We yep. care about each other. And we'll stand yeah. up for each other. And Rance, you know, General Mattis yesterday had some comments about whether we're bringing together or whether we're sort of not bringing together at this opportunity to potentially show unity. Uh, any reflections or thoughts on that specifically? Well, I look up to the general, so I'm not going to make, I'm not going to get in the middle of a, it's not really worth it to me to get in the middle of their, uh, personally though, speak for myself, I would find ways to unify as best as we can. And I would prefer to speak as I just did, as to my own opinion on what we should be doing as leaders in our country yep. and, and every one of us, I think have a responsibility to build each other up, not tear each other down. Yep. Yep. Fair, fair point. All right. Let me uh, change gears a little bit. Do you have a favorite movie? Uh, well, funny that it, it kind of coincides with my answer with uh, Charles Dickens and, and literature. So I really love the movie, the dead poets society. Oh, fabulous movie. Remember that? Well, it's an <laughs> older movie, Robin Williams and, yeah. and the boarding school and I, uh, Carpe Diem and Keats. And it was an important movie to me in high school. Yep. And it kind of brought up, you know, the 19th century British novel and writers. And yeah. Yep. Uh, so uh, let's now roll forward. 2024. You know, uh, we have Ambassador Nikki Haley, who wrote a book telling us that she's not going to run for office or mentions that she's not sure. Uh, we have Pompeo. We have Rubio. We have a bunch of uh, folks. Any that politician that writes a book and says, I'm not running, it's probably running. That's you know? <laughs> what, what I'm thinking, right? I mean, uh, and she's, uh, you know, she's been 
really uh, thoughtful, I think, in some of yeah, her comments. So uh, give us your thoughts on 2024. Uh, and, you know, obviously you and I have discussed this before, but, you know, Trump family members, I mean, there's, there's yeah. a whole... I, you know, I, it's hard to say. I think 2024 is going to look a little bit like 2016 for us and how 2020 looked for the Democrats. It seems like we're moving into more and more like, hey, anyone can win, so why not just throw the dice and see what happens in Iowa and New Hampshire? Um, but you're going to have Mike Pompeo, probably a guy like that would be an interesting candidate. Nikki Haley, you, you know, Mike Pence. You could have one of the Trump kids running. I mean, I don't know. Um, but I think Tom Cotton, you're gonna have a lot of people. Yep. Um, and many others. So it'll be an exciting time. And you know, we'll see what happens in 2020. It's gonna be it's tough to predict. Um, I remind everybody that in 2016, people who think Trump's down and out, most people thought he was down and out in June and July and August too. And there were a lot of things that happened like, oh, I can't believe this and I can't believe that. In the last three weeks in October, five speeches a day, not speaking to the press, voters forget June of 2020 isn't even gonna be remembered in October of 2020. It's gonna be like 10 years ago. And then the end of October, the beginning of October is going to feel like 10 years ago too. Yeah. So it's the one thing that everyone likes to try to make these predictions and think, well, this guy's just being a homer because he doesn't want to say that Trump isn't going to win. No, I just don't think what, I don't think, I think the end month is what matters. Yep. In the predicted yep. outcome. And do you think the, uh, the stock market matters? Yeah. I think it matters. I mean, I think it matters because I think it might matter psychologically. Okay. Yeah. But what matters is, is how people are feeling. Look, people got to have hope, especially in these battleground states, that the economy is going to get better, that things are getting better, demand is picking up. I don't think everything has to get fixed yeah. by November. But in October, people have to feel like there's hope. And I think there's going to feel it. I mean, already you're moving to phase one and phase two. And I think people are going to feel, I think the number, the job numbers are going to get better. I mean, not certainly didn't get better today, but yeah. they're going to get better next week and the week after and the week after that as slowly but surely some jobs come back. Some jobs aren't going to come back. Yeah. Um, but I think there's going to be a feeling of hope and that's important for an incumbent. Yep. Yeah, it is interesting because there's this huge part of the reason I asked the question as stock market rather than the economy is, you know, we have massive unemployment numbers hitting the tape regularly, including today. Uh, at the same time where I think yesterday in the middle of the day, the NASDAQ hit a not a high for the year, a high forever, an all time high. Right. Now, that is a stunning degree of inequality being seen. Right. <laughs> Right, absolutely. sort of Main Street versus Wall Street, and I wonder how that feeling comes across. Uh, well, I, here's the thing: I think you need all of the above. I mean, when when we lost, when Mitt Romney lost to Barack Obama, remember Obama was at like 38 percent approval the year before. I was on Face the Nation, and he was thinking, "There's no way Barack Obama can win at 37 percent approval." Mm -hmm. But slowly but surely. Tick tock, tick tock, July, 
August, September. Dun, 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 dun. Just a little better, a little better, a little better. And by the way, half the country liked Obama by the time it was over. Half the country didn't, you know, most of the country wasn't too enamored with Mitt. I thought Mitt was a great, you know, person and all these ideas, but you know, the who do you want to have a beer with uh, contest didn't favor Mitt Romney. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And, and that's important too. I mean, all those things matter. I mean, Hillary Clinton, Trump was at 37% approval in November of 2016. He won. Well, it just so happened Hillary's at 35, right? Yeah. So it's not just a race to the top in politics. Sometimes it's a race to the bottom. Disqualifying your opponent is just as important as promoting yourself. Sure. It's not just about winning. It's about helping the other person lose. <laughs> 100%. Yeah. So, uh, Rance, we're running out of time. I have a lot of questions. We're not going to get to them. So I want to just end on a, a slightly personal note here. So after you left the White House, you went into the Navy. What was the thinking? Oh, um, well, first of all, this I'll make it short, but a couple things. One, my family has a history of uh, the Navy. My dad taught at Great Lakes in, in, in Chicago. Okay. Um, my sister was a lieutenant commander doctor in the Navy. They paid for her med school. She, lived, she lives in San Diego now. She's retired from the Navy, but the Navy was always a little part of my family. Um, and I was about to do Navy reserves before I became chairman of the RNC. And I was working my way up to get this direct commission. And then I became chair of the RNC and someone said, look, you know, it's probably not a good idea for like an ensign in the Navy to be on TV bashing the commander in chief every week. <laughs> said, yeah, it's not gonna work, plus I get all this. So then, okay, fast forward now, seven years go by and I, I had an experience which with, I'll, I'll make it short, I'm not gonna tell you the whole story, but it is, a, it is interesting, but, we had an incredible Navy SEAL by the name of Ryan Owens that um, died in an, in, an, in an attack in Yemen. And if you all recall, there was a concern about laptops and bombs and laptops for a while in 2017, and they were going to ban certain flights in and laptops had to go. You know, I don't know if you remember that, but unfortunately, one of the great heroes died and he was a Navy SEAL. And that played a big part of my experience in the West Wing because I met, I saw his wife and kids in the Oval Office. And, I, and it was the day that we were doing the speech in the, hall, in, in the hall of Congress. That was the joint speech. If you remember when she was there and there were multiple standing ovations, well, the guests of the president come to the Oval Office before they give a speech. And I walked in and I saw her, very pretty and two little cute kids. And I was looking across the room, I thought, who are these boys? I said, I know that's the wife of the Navy SEAL. Ah, oh, jeez. that died in Yemen. And I felt, you know, and I saw the two little kids and I thought to myself, well, these kids, they don't realize that dad's not coming back. And because dad's been going back and forth, he's like, you know, one of these guys that just serves and serves and serves and is just giving of himself to our country and the family's sacrificing so much. And that's the other thing about military. There's so much sacrifice, not me, not my service. My service is nothing compared to what 
most of these people go through. This is family sacrifice beyond words. Yeah. And yeah. it all kind of came back. And so one day I was up talking to Mattis about General Mattis about something. And he said to me, how come you never did this? You seem so interested in this stuff. And I said, well, here's the story that I just told you. Yeah. He said, well, come down the hallway. So I went down the hallway and then I started this process that led to a commission in the Navy. And I'm happy to do it. I'm, I'm doing, I'm, I'm a nothing, nobody that will do what I'm told to do. So that's my role in the Navy. There you go. That sounds great. So Rance, I know we want to end uh, really quickly if we can keep it, uh, uh, if you have a second longer here, I know we're just about out of time, but uh, what was your last day in the office like? <laughs> well, I'll make it very quick. It's a much longer, funnier story, but I had resigned the day before and I wasn't used to, I mean, it was brutal. I mean, these guys, now we know that people were planting stories on us left and right and leaking to the press, but we didn't know that all these things were happening, whether it be Flynn and Sally Yates and Comey and, you know, all this stuff was like every month seemed like a year with all this stuff that was going on. It was wild. I mean, every day could be at one of your podcasts. Yeah. yeah. And, and so I wasn't used to that. You know, I'm a button down organized, six years running the RNC. I never, you never heard of anything going on with thousands of employees, millions of dollars coming and going. You never heard a thing. And, but this was wild. So I resigned. I've still cared about the president a lot, obviously. And I just felt like it was going out of control. So I resigned the day before, next day, go on the plane, have a great day with the president. Uh, and John Kelly takes over. And, um, you know, it was kind of a wild thing because I walked up the plane and, and I had a great conversation with the president. We were getting along great. We still do. And he tweeted it. And I thought to myself, well, wait a second. I just talked to the president 30 seconds ago. What's going on? And um, but the one thing it goes to show you is that um, the president's decision making was, I know what I want to do next. Reince is fine. He's not going to, I'm not going to cause any problems, which you can see I don't. And instead of going through this big decision-making process and matrix and checking 20 boxes, like a lot of other people would do, he just instantly made the switch. So I was relieved too. I mean, quite frankly, I was relieved and I was, I was a little, it's sort of, you know, you're sad, but you're happy. And I remember leaving the West Wing and I know that folks on the webinar are all different. We have different views on things. But one of the things I remembered was I looked back at that White House and it is an awe-inspiring place that no matter who you are, you look at it and you think, wow, this place is magnificent. And leaving as chief of staff for the last time, I remember looking back there and I said, you know, there's nothing on the inside that tells you who's president, or what party's in control, it's still that same awe-inspiring, incredible yeah. gift that we have as Americans that stands for everything that we believe in. And that is something I'll never forget. Yeah, awesome. Well, Rance, 
thank you so much for taking the time. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I've enjoyed getting to know you a little bit here uh, and talking with you. Uh, you. I had a good time. It went by fast. We didn't even get in all the tweeting yet. <laughs> I know. Well, you know what? Uh, I really do appreciate your time. Thank you. And for everyone on the webinar, there will be a replay. I'll organize it and look through it and get it uh, posted hopefully later today. Uh, and Rince, I'll get you a copy of it. And uh, uh, thank you all again for taking the time to tune in. And Rince, have a wonderful weekend. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Think for Yourself podcast. For more information, please do visit Dr. Manchamani's website at www.manshamani.com or follow him on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Instagram. And of course, if you haven't done so already, we encourage you to purchase his book, Think for Yourself, which is available for pre-order on Amazon.